What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Dear Media IRL is back, and we're showing up bigger, better, and louder than ever. Join us on May 4th in Austin, Texas, for the ultimate live podcasting experience. Watch and learn from your favorite Dear Media hosts as they bring their insightful discussions from your headphones to the stage. Get ready to be inspired, entertained, and watch audio get a makeover. Tickets are on sale now at dearmedia.com slash IRL. See you on May 4th in Austin. In Texas. Oh, hi. If you like this show, will you leave a review for it wherever you listen to podcasts? You don't even have to write anything, just some stars will do. It's one of the most effective ways to spread the word about us and one of the most meaningful ways to show your support for what we do. We are so grateful. Okay, here's the show. Welcome to A Thing or Two, a deep dive into stuff we think more people should know about. I'm Claire Maser. And I'm Erica Cerullo. To share your thoughts on this episode or anything really, leave us a voicemail at 833-632-5463. Or you can DM us on Instagram at A Thing or Two HQ. And join our Geneva for more of this chatter, but with a bigger, bigger group of people. More voices in the mix. More voices. And please do leave us voicemails. They've been on the slower end lately, but we got a really good one we're playing at the end of this episode. Uh, this one's perfect. It's this charming. one is perfect. Speaking of perfect. Uh, it, there's an update in the Miffy corner. The Miffyverse. In the Miffyverse. Um, you know we stay on top of the Miffy beat. There is an account now mm-hmm. called at Miffy Dances on Instagram. <laughs> Friends, it is just, I don't know how to explain it besides it is like, remember how the internet used to be? It's the that internet of yore. The yeah. internet of yore. Yes. The internet, the ye old internet. Yes has like come back to life in the because form of Miffy Dances. So dumb and so entertaining. Miffy Dances to two songs a day. Because the Instagram bio of Miffy Dances is simply posting two songs a day. That is it. DMs are open. <laughs> it also tells you that the account was started on 1-1-2024. So this mm-hmm. was like someone's New Year's resolution. Yes. They were like, I am planning for this. Mm-hmm. And then clock strikes midnight is go time for Miffy Dances. <laughs> um, she has 33,000 followers already. This is fast. And we're recording this in mid-February. Yeah. The Miffy, the Miffy fandom is strong. The Miffy fandom is strong. The Miffy Hive. Miffy dances as a ratio queen because she follows zero people. <laughs> Doesn't need to. She follows zero. So she so the, the Instagram account is Doesn't uh, even follow Miffy. No. She is a form of Miffy. Yeah, no, but um, yeah. I guess it's it right. Is it weird? Is it is it like meta? Is it yeah, like whatever? Or narcissistic. Like yeah, what, totally. you know. Yeah. So the account is a clip of 
Miffy repeated many times over dancing in a row, basically. Yeah, multiple Miffies yeah. crossing crossing a screen dancing. She's just trotting along. Yeah, uh, that's right. Trotting. It's pretty uncomplicated. I'd say we made it sound more sophisticated <laughs> already than it actually is. To add to the level of uncomplication, nothing changes from post to post except the song. The speed at which Miffy moves across the screen, the dance moves that Miffy does all hold and which also there's something delightful about it in that like some of the songs as a result work extremely well because Miffy will like hit the mark. All of them somehow work extremely well. And that's kind of the magic of the Miffy dances account because when I went to verify whether or not they were slowing down the tempo to adjust to the song, I actually couldn't totally tell because it felt right for every single song. <laughs> and I was like, did they? Sl- I can't tell. Has Miffy discovered the perfect dance? I think so. I think it is one of those things that weirdly just works with everything. No rhythm, just vibes. It's just a dance that works for every song. Wow. I uh, love that. Yeah. I really love that. The other thing that I really like about the rise of Miffy in America, which which has been a thing over the last like few years. Mm-hmm. The New York Times did a story about Miffy. They didn't give MoMA Design Store credit in a way that was odd to both of us. Yes, it Um, did seem like a real mess. I was mad on MoMA's behalf. So this Miffy rise does not appear to be creating any friction with Hello Kitty. Like there does not seem to be a team Miffy, team Hello Kitty. Which is consistent. That's what there's. And that's what they would want in the way that Selena Gomez, whenever she's having beef with her other fandoms is like, no, my brand is all about kindness. Please don't be mean to other people on my behalf. I feel like Hello Kitty fans and Miffy fans know that these women are all about kindness. They would not want there to be fandom beef. I feel like Miffy's rise mm-hmm. in America and and the Hello Kitty of it all for me is Beyonce and Taylor at each other's mm, uh, yes. AMC movies. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Like sitting front row at each other's yeah. AMC movies yeah. being like, yes, there I is room right. for both of us. You think their publicists arrange this. Yeah. yeah. Like, or I just feel like there's room for both of us, mm-hmm. darling a- uh, animated characters. Yes. Yeah. I agree. I yeah. agree. Yeah. Well, thank you to whoever run Miffy Dances. We love it. Somehow related, I think we decided is musical covers. Yeah. I'm, As in covers of songs. Covers of songs. Yeah. Not it's like hard, album art. Yes. It's hard to talk about the to have the right language for for covers. But yeah, they're song covers. Saying they're having a moment is a stretch, as it almost always is when we claim something is having a moment on this podcast. Sometimes and then <laughs> and anyway, I won't <laughs> I won't waste your space. Well, I'm I'm not gonna say that I There's some things happening in the musical cover space. I personally love covers. Chris makes fun of me for it. He doesn't. He's like, why? The original is always the best. Like, why? Why do I need to listen to something other than the original? I think the problem is his framework. Mm -hmm. I think it's not about best. Yeah. I think best is like actually totally irrelevant to this conversation. I think it's just how fun it is to hear other people do this thing and like bring their own flair to it. I agree. It's a fun, creative exercise. Yeah. The other thing is that it's nice to hear this something familiar, yes. right? Like it, it's pleasing to the ear. It's comforting. It's nice to know the tune, the lyrics, et cetera. Yes. That is part of why I like it. But yeah, I think I just like being like, what's someone else's take on this? And if I love a song, why wouldn't I want five different versions of it? It's also my approach to clothing. <laughs> ding, 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 <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Okay, so here's my case for covers having a moment. Beyond the fact that when life is tough, we like to lean into the comforting things, right? And covers are comforting. Obviously, the Tracy Chapman, Luke Combs moment. 
did you see that that like that it reached number one on Apple Music? Yes, that yes. That, that her version, yes, that Tracy's yes, version. Yes, yes, I felt so pleased with the way that this whole Grammy thing went I mean, down. It was so um, perfect in the way that I was just like, thank you for finally giving this relationship, mm-hmm. this like duo, this like yeah. it, it was it. It just achieved everything I hoped it could. That's I, all. That's I, all. And, and things so rarely do. So rarely. It it will also just the impact online went on for days. I couldn't believe how long it stayed at the top of people's conversations. I think still. Yeah, no, um, it's still it, well because it really was that good. The, the Grammy performance. The other uh, cultural cover moment this in, in recent history, the steel drum PIMP and Anatomy of a Fall. Does that count as a cover if they don't sing? Or is it oh, just yeah. an instrumental version? Well, um, I think for our purposes, for it's our a purposes, cover. For our purposes, we're going to say it's a cover. It's a really important part of that that movie that there's a steel drum rendition of, of 50 Cent's PIMP. The other thing is the Kelly Clarkson effect because she's doing all of these covers on her talk show and the internet very quickly was like, it's Damn, actually- it sucks when Kelly Clarkson <laughs> yes. sings your song because she's so good. Because she's always going to be better than you. I mean, that is who Kelly Clarkson is. <laughs> She is a performer. She's so good. And she's so much fun to watch. The other thing, so there's this Bob Marley biopic coming out and Leon Bridges did a uh, redemption song. So good. I imagine that that whole, that whole soundtrack, soundtrack is going to be, be awesome. Covers. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that I need to talk about that somebody tipped us off to on our in thingies is Pedal Steel Noah. This child is so charming. I don't know why I didn't write down how old he is. I'm going to guess he's like 16. No, he's 15. Sorry, I did write it down. Okay. So this kid, he's 15 years old. He and his 13-year-old brother, Nate, and their dog, Kara, just do covers. And their dog, Kara. And their dog, (laughs) Kara. Uh Kara's in every single video. She just sits at the front in front of the camera. So every single video is shot from the exact same angle. It is Noah at his, his pedal steel guitar. It is his brother Nate behind him on a, usually electric guitar. And yes. then it's Kara wearing a pink bandana, just staring at the camera while they do covers, mostly of 80s music, sometimes 90s. They take requests. And Kara sits there so still the entire time. She really makes this whole thing. He said she's trained to sit, but sometimes she gets tired. I stay positive so she will stay happy. She's a good girl. I think she likes the way my pedal steel sounds. That's how it works. Okay, so I didn't know what a pedal steel guitar is. It looks like, it's like the size of a keyboard, basically. So it's a staple of mid-century country and pop music. Pedal steel guitar adds the texture to your dad's favorite songs from the twang of Neil Young's (laughs) Out on the Weekend to the beloved backdrop of Elton John's Tiny Dancer. But it's hard to think of an artist born after 1960 who plays it. I, the first time somebody DM'd us about this or contributed to thingies, I I read it as uh, a steel drum. I was like, oh, 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 a steel drum. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's completely different. <laughs> it is not at all like the steel drum. It just has that word in common. Um, and as an instrument, both. Oh, the other thing I forgot to say about these boys is they both wear cowboy hats while doing all this because they're in Texas. So they, they do Duran Duran, Depeche Mode, U2 and more. Faulkner said his mom recommends bands she likes for him to cover, hence the plethora of 80s rockers. One of his most popular covers with more than 1.3 million views brings the softer drawn out sounds of pedal steel to Joy Division's anthem Love Will Tear Us Apart. The one that I really love that I just, it's so moving is Everywhere by Fleetwood Mac. I, I don't know. I didn't even know what a pedal steel guitar was, but I'm now deeply moved by the sound <laughs> of it. And there's all of these people in his comments being like, 
does anybody else feel like kind of like high, like they get a buzz from the sound of this instrument? I think that this instrument is important to people. It is a, it is a, it's a great instrument. Perhaps it's, to you. For me and you Perhaps know, to you. many of Pedal Steel Noah's Instagram followers. He hauls the 40 pound instrument around Austin where he gigs at venues such as Kind of Tropical and Empire Control Room. He's also working on a studio album of original songs with plans to release it by Christmas. Wait, speaking of cowboy hats, mm-hmm. another cover that, I have been taken with recently is the Boy Genius cover of Cowboy Take Me Away. Um, the chicks. Oh, I don't know about oh, this. Well, I mean, obviously, oh my like God. incredible. Yeah. Like it's yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Song. Yeah. And it is very much that case of being like, how would anything ever? We're not trying to top yeah. the original, but like hearing these three sing a song that those three sang, yeah. like that's compelling stuff. I can't. I, I love a cover. What can I say? I'm desperate to hear it. Okay. Also, guest on our previous episode, Emily Sunberg, she tipped me off via her Instagram to a YouTube show called Like a Version that is all... Like a Version. Like a Version. Great name, right? So good. Great name. Uh, All very famous musicians doing covers, uh, which, you know, I would never know about because I don't watch YouTube, but I was very excited to discover this. How fun. And then... I also didn't know, a follower told us about this, T-Pain released a covers-only album last last year, I believe it was. It might have been the year before. It's called- Like a- that Mark Ronson album. Didn't Mark Ronson do one of those back, way back? Probably. Oh, I mean, the way your face love, changed you know, when, I I, when I said Mark Ronson. Jeez, so jeez. So T-Pain's album is called On Top of the Covers. He does Otis Redding on it. It is so delightful. T-Pain is just delightful. T-Pain What's not delightful. to like about T-Pain? This guy, Trevor Horn, who I'd never heard of, did an entire, I think he's a producer, did an album of a bunch of different pe- famous musicians doing covers. So Tori Amos does Kendrick Lamar's Swimming Pools. Rick Astley does Owner of a Lonely Heart. Iggy Pop does Personal Jesus. It's delightful. And then, of course, I also, a deeply influ- important album to me is Annie Lennox's Medusa, which is all covers. Just wonderful, oh, I didn't iconic. That. Yeah, I didn't realize it in high school when I was listening to it nonstop that it was all covers, but it is okay. And then just uh, pun intended, a deep cut that is one of my favorite covers of all time. This Jamaican reggae singer Norma Fraser does Cheryl Crow's first cut is the deepest. It is one of the best covers I think I've ever heard. It is so delightful because it's just a totally different song, but it's still recognizable and it's wonderful. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much to Olive and June for sponsoring today's episode. I have always been one of those people for the longest time since I was a kid who just sort of said, I just can't do my own nails. I'm just not one of those people who's good at it. Some people are good at it, not me. I have other skills and doing my nails is not one of them. I have to tell you though, it turns out having the right tools is half the battle. And I learned this only because of Olive and June and their Manny and Petty system. Of course, there is skill in this, and some people are, you know, true professionals and true artists, but truly just having the tools that professionals use and having tools that sometimes I think in the Olive and June case are even better than than the ones professionals use because they're really meant for the the at-home DIY manicurist. It makes such a big difference. It makes it easier. It makes it not such a lift. Everything you need for a salon-quality manicure comes in one box with the Olive and June systems. Their salon-grade tools are designed just for DIY, so you can customize your box with your choice of six polishes. Their polish doesn't chip and lasts seven days or more, and it breaks down to just $2 a manicure. They also have press-ons that look so real, and they last so long, and they have so many sizes, you can find the perfect fit. They're non-damaging and better than gel, so you can get a mani in less than 10 minutes. The press-ons are only $10 a set, 
And with easy removal, you can just take them off with warm water, change them out as much as you want, or keep them on for weeks. Or you can also paint their press-ons, take the polish off, and end up with a fresh, perfect mani. Olive and June Quick Dry dries in about a minute. It lasts for five or more days, and you get full coverage in one to two coats. It's offered in over 40 cruelty-free and vegan shades. Visit oliveandjune.com slash a thing or two for 20% off your first Manny system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash A-T-H-I-N-G-O-R-T-W-O for 20% off your first Manny system. Again, that's oliveandjune.com slash a thing or two for 20% off your first Manny system. Hi guys, it's Jordan from the Balanced Blonde Soul on Fire podcast. On my show, we go deep on all things astrology, awakening, motherhood, channeling, healing, and so much more. A few years ago, I was diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease, and the healing journey I embarked on at that time set me on the path to radical awakening. Let's just say I had no choice but to change my energy, and that opened me up to the most beautiful healing of my life. On my show, you can expect to feel like you're sitting in my living room chatting with old friends. Tune in every Wednesday to connect and hang on the Balanced Bond Soul on Fire. Can you talk to me about the high five? I, you shared an incredible, like <laughs> casually in a group chat. And I was like, excuse me. Uh, okay. This, this actually, yeah, this is, this is delightful. We're a bit late to our Super Bowl content, but here we are. It's okay. Thomas went to the Paley Center, which is like media mm-hmm. center, TV, whatever. Super Bowl weekend, Saturday of Super Bowl weekend to watch a recording of the first Super Bowl, Super Bowl one. So a, a co- several questions, as we say. Did he go by himself? No, he had two tickets. Um, <laughs> I was the backup attendee <laughs> and I was I it was looking like I was going to go be- mm-hmm. because the friend that he ended up going with. Jasper is it just can't make a plan mm-hmm. but, unless it's 12 hours before. Okay. And so the night before, I was like, "You're you tell Jasper. Mm-hmm. He has to decide tonight if he's yeah. go- if because if you needed to mentally prepare. Yeah, if I'm gonna go watch Super Bowl one at, <laughs> at the at the Paley Center, I want to know at least twelve hours. Have you before. watched any of the post one Super Bowls? Like, have you ever watched like a full Super Bowl game? I think like it? in high school. Okay, so when this there was be, like nothing better to do. This like, would truly. be your first Super Bowl in twenty some years, probably. Yeah, okay. yeah probably. They How had, did he find out about it? That was one of my other questions. Excellent question. Patrick, the owner of Kettle of Fish, (laughs) an incredible bar in Greenwich Village Uh that is a Uh Packer bar. Patrick is from Mm -hmm. Wisconsin, is the one who alerted him and Patrick attended this screening. The the participants in the first Super Bowl were the Green Bay Packers, Thomas's team. Okay, so that's why it was important to him. That's why it was important to him and the the Chiefs. Oh, wow. The Packers won. Spoiler, spoiler. Whoever's doing the programming over there and was like, you know what? Now that the Chiefs are in the Super Bowl this year, we should play... Well, what's crazy, actually, Claire, uh-huh. is the thing that happened is no one knew they had this footage. Like, the, people thought that footage was lost. This wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Like, it's not that old. Mm-hmm. But, like, no one had had dug up this footage. And someone realized that their dad had worked for a CBS affiliate and, like, had old tapes in an attic. And that is where they found it. And they have they were missing, like, 30 minutes of the second <laughs> of the second half. Okay, it's crazy. Also, at that time, what year was it? Sorry. So this was from 1967. So it's like, I assume that things were that were on television in 1967 are shared somewhere or saved somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So this was aired on two networks because it was 
the first Super Bowl was played before the NFL and the AFL merged. Okay. And so they're like, they had different okay. TV affiliates. Mm-hmm. Despite all of that, all we've got is one guy's dad's recordings VHS. in an attic. Yeah. Yeah. Missing 30 minutes. Taped the prices right over it. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. In like 1985. Yeah. So okay. anyway, Thomas came home from this with a lot of thoughts and feelings. <laughs> and it did make me like a little bit regret not, not going. going. In part because he was like, it was so different for like just in in the sense that sports was not entertainment. Mm. This was a athletic competition you were watching that just happened to be on television. Mm-hmm. Like it was not certainly being like created for the Nobody television viewer. Up. Like, yeah. And just like it it didn't have the tenor of yeah. like, I'm here to put on a show for you. Mm-hmm. And the players didn't interact in a way that they were like performers. Mm-hmm. They were just like players making plays. Mm-hmm. And there were moments where you could tell players were disappointed in themselves mm-hmm. or like, they would fumble or whatever. But then when they got a touchdown, they would like shake the coach's hand. And part of the, the thing happening here mm-hmm. is that the high five wasn't invented yet. What's so, I, you know, there's there's so much that's surprising about that and about this concept and about this idea. Because, But the the most surprising thing to me is that men had not, just come up with we're not aggressively touching each other in some way you know like I'm like they weren't doing a chest bump they weren't kicking each other like it just feels so natural to men to figure out a way to hit each other yeah you weren't kicking each other chest bumping nothing punching nothing nothing (laughs) so from Wikipedia there are many origin stories of the high five but the two most documented candidates are Dusty Baker and Glenn Burke of the LA Dodgers professional baseball team on October 2nd 1977 and Wiley Brown and Derek Smith of the Louisville Cardinals men's college basketball team during the 1978 1979 season that's wild Claire at its oldest uh-huh. the high five is 47 I just turned 41. Like, <laughs> this is six years older than me, the high five. Yeah, no, I, it, it, that's crazy. I, I just, like, cannot, the brain cannot compute. Doesn't it make you want to go ask your parents about it? Yeah. <laughs> like, the way you ask them about other stuff, like, what was it like before cell phones, you know? Totally. And how like, did you? How did you? And, like, yeah. just my understanding of the world is that we, that we always had this. It, of or, course. It was always like this. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I'm not imagining you know, Renaissance women high-fiving each other necessarily. (laughs) But it does feel like a really natural human behavior. 19th century, let's say. (laughs) Let's say. I just, like, it feels, I don't know, maybe like the military-industrial complex, right? Like, it could have come around at that time. I don't know. Totally, totally. I just... When we started having world wars, I figured we would have high-fives. That would have made sense to me. For whatever reason, this called to mind for me, this tweet that I had sent you... Mm. that <laughs> basically was someone was someone on TikTok yeah. being like, I didn't know Harry Styles was in One Direction. Yeah, they were gobsmacked. They were like, I had no idea Harry Styles was in One Direction. And that feels related to this mm-hmm. for me, where it's like, we just assume that the things as they are were just like kind always. of the way, always yeah. were, unless told otherwise. Correct. Absolutely. No, I'm, yeah, I'm sure I could think of several things. <laughs> Especially having a five-year-old who can't imagine the world not revolving around him. I will never get over this. The high five feels so important to me as like a... And the fact that they did nothing with each other. They didn't physically interact with each other, well, these sh- football players. Hands. Right, shook hands. Yeah, no, I guess. 
I did want to take this opportunity to tell you about an incredible book, which, again, makes it seem like the high five is incredibly important and enduring to our culture. So this is a children's book called High Five. It is by Adam Rubin and Daniel Salmieri, who many will know as the duo who brought you Dragon's Love Tacos. I can picture the cover of Dragon's Love Tacos, which means that this is a a big book because I do not have a child. It's a very important book. So High Five is a lesser known piece from these two. A lesser known piece. (laughs) It is about a a high five contest. Okay. The contest has wrestling match vibes, like you're in a ring. Okay. But the reader slash the kid being read to is competing. He's a a competitor in the High Five contest. Uh Uh So Uh he gets to high five the book on every page because he's high fiving his opponents on the page. It's very, very fun. And then the last page when he, spoiler, wins. uh, He wins, takes home top (laughs) prize at the High Five contest. H-I-G-H-F-I-V-E. That's how you spell victory. Wow. Yeah. And to that we go only, through this and, that we and then only to have yes. that for 47 years. Yes. Anyway, wow. I just, I kind of want to get this book for Thomas now. I know he's not, that this was not like him, <laughs> him claiming the high five as something deeply important to him. I just am so grateful to him for revealing to us this thing that frankly feels incredibly important. I this agree. This niche trivia that is in fact, that shouldn't be niche. That shouldn't be niche. I do, we do need to find out who invented it and how and why. I think there are other people on it and they haven't gotten to the bottom of it. I didn't. I, didn't, I mean, Claire, the, the like the sports nerds, because if if the Louisville Cardinals college team is a contender, people have gone deep. Yeah. I just think about all the things like you have your special high fives with people. Listen, high five. Yeah. Down up high, down low, too slow. <laughs> yeah. When was up high, down low, too slow invented? How, how long did it take him to do that? So say all these things. Like, think about the broader implications of High Five not being around. To resurface the Grammys, which we're pro- will have been like a month out by the time. <laughs> Listen, this, this is our Grammys first. and Super Bowl episode, you know? I know people had a lot of gripes about Taylor at the Grammys, and she was deeply embarrassing. It, there, not enough attention was paid to how embarrassing her secret handshake with Jack Antonoff is that she does every time she they win something. It was it for me was the most clenchy moment. You were like, was, "Why aren't we talking about this?" Yeah, I was like, what, "If S- Celine Dion, who cares? Why aren't we talking about what, this? If we want to get upset, let's get upset about this." Yeah, this was the hardest thing for me to watch yeah. of all the things. Yeah, yeah. Yes to high fives, no to secret handshakes. Is that? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Or I just like secret yeah. handshakes have their place, and it's yeah. not at award shows. Yes. And maybe like, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much to Indeed for sponsoring today's episode. Anybody who has ever taken on the task of hiring for a new role knows that there is a right way to do it and there is a wrong way to do it. And there are probably more wrong ways to do it than right ways to do it. It is so challenging. You feel like you're sort of sorting through this giant haystack trying to find this one perfect candidate. And the truth is, the wrong approach is to go after it and approach it as a search. What you really need to be doing is matching. And Indeed works this way, right? They match you with the right candidates instead of asking you to search through all of these people. They are a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. So you ditch the busy work. You use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And they don't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. 
They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Listeners of our show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash a thing or two. Just go to Indeed.com slash a thing or two right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash a thing or two. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Thank you so much to Charles Chocolates for sponsoring today's episode. You all have heard me talk about how I discovered this chocolate brand via their chocolate-covered orange peels, which are truly best in class, I think. They sent us a box of so many of their chocolate products, all of which are so good and truly live up to the standard set up set by these chocolate-covered orange peels. But I have to talk about the ruby chocolate, which I did not know what ruby chocolate was. It's pink. And I love a berry and chocolate combo, like raspberry and chocolate is where it's at for me. So I was intrigued because it was like, what is this? Is this a berry and chocolate thing? It turns out that ruby chocolate is a new frontier in chocolate. It is the fourth type of chocolate after dark milk and white. I am not a white chocolate person, but this almost combines the a little bit of the flavor profile of white chocolate with like a richer berry flavor. And Charles Chocolates has all of these ruby chocolate bars that they're both delicious and feel like an exciting novelty and are really pretty because they're pink. And they do have this kind of like slight berry undertone to them. It's a different kind of cacao bean. It's like a pinkish purple cacao bean that produces this. I was fascinated and delighted by this. Charles Chocolate is a premier artisan chocolate brand handcrafted in small batches in San Francisco to ensure the highest quality. Founded by Chuck Siegel, a self-taught chocolatier with a passion for creating exceptional chocolate confections using only the finest natural ingredients. They're committed to freshness and flavor. They use no artificial flavors or preservatives. They highlight the natural and exquisite taste of real chocolates. Their award-winning chocolates are recognized across the country for their innovation and dedication to quality, making them a favorite among chocolate connoisseurs. They have won the Good Food Award in 2011, Sunset Magazine's Best of the West Award, so many chocolate awards, really. And their chocolates are also so, so beautiful and make the perfect gift, the perfect hostess gift, the perfect dinner party gift, the perfect you're having a tough time and maybe you need some bonbons gift. So visit charleschocolates.com and use a thing 15 for 15% off your first purchase. Again, that's charleschocolates.com and use a thing 15 as your code to get 15% off your first purchase. All right, can we can we switch gears and talk about the fortune cookies? Yes. Uh, I don't know how long fortune cookies have been around, but I think longer than the high five. Definitely. <laughs> Actually, let's find out. Yeah, let's, let's, um, let's find out. I shouldn't say definitely. <laughs> no, it's true. Beats me. Okay, so it is believed that the fortune cookies were created by, by a Japanese man mm. named Makoto Hagiwara in 1914 in San Francisco. Wow. Way older than the high five. 50 some years. But I was going to guess it was way older than that. I mean, this, they're very commercial. They're very totally, restaurant oriented totally. in that way. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. So I, I guess I buy okay. that. No, I mean, I buy it. I just would have guessed earlier if we were <laughs> yeah. a trivia. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, okay, there's a contending, as with all of these inventions, mm -hmm. there's another contender, a Chinese immigrant named David Jung, 
who founded the Hong Kong Noodle Company while living in Los Angeles in 1918. So, but it's okay, the same all time, around the same time, same time period. Okay, okay. Hard to say who exactly. Okay. I went to Peking Duck House with my family the other Love. day. It was great. They gave us fried bananas as dessert. And Cam just looks at the waiter and goes, I was really hoping for fortune cookies, <laughs> which was so rude. His audacity, however, was rewarded because <laughs> we got fortune cookies. And the guy like totally, he was like, he did, he was like relented. He was like, okay. Like he was like, sure. Sure. Not uh, the first person to ask. Yeah. I am very used to being somewhere between indifferent to disappointed in my fortunes these yeah. days. Like I just, I haven't gotten one that's left an, an imprint on my mind in a, in yeah. a while. They were some of the best fortunes I've ever received, these fortune cookies. There were two that I thought were outstanding. Okay? Ready. Self-confidence is just enthusiasm at work. It really spoke to me. Yeah, like in your deepest Well, core. one, enthusiasm. Yeah. Professional enthusiasts. I, yes. yes. I was like, I actually really love this. I love this as a way to think about self-confidence. It did feel to me like a distant, like second, third cousin of people will love what we have loved and we will show them how. Yeah. No, a yeah. A very confident statement. Yeah, totally. A very <laughs> self-confident statement. <laughs> yeah, totally. Which is really just about enthusiasm. Yeah. Self-confidence is just enthusiasm at work. I absolutely loved it. The other one was security is not just in having things, it's in handling things. Incredible. This, I, I find that to be very comforting. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. I, yeah. Because it also felt like a distant cousin of learning to live with longing. Yeah. It felt, it reminded me of that Oliver Berkman book we love, um, 4,000 4, Weeks. 4,000 Weeks. 4,000 yeah. Weeks. It's very much about like, so much of being human is about thinking that you have any control over how your life goes. Like a plan is just an idea. The universe is absolutely no obligation to comply with your plans and ideas. Yes. So it is really just about handling things. It's and coping that's and like, yeah. Yeah, 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 coping. It just, both of these things felt like incredible life advice. And I was so happy and like, wow, this, this is what all fortune cookies should aspire to be. I should have looked up the brand to see, you know, what who, who we should be looking to. Who we should be thanking. Yeah. And who, and who... We should be stalking. Yes, really. exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, because that guidance could be helpful for my for my recent fortune cookie anecdote. Mm -hmm. um, I went to a Vietnamese restaurant in Charlotte, North Carolina recently, a place called Saigon Palace that was quite good. But in, in looking up reviews before going, mm -hmm. landed on this one. Good fa for an affordable price, but what is up with you all's fortune cookies being so negative? <laughs> <laughs> I prefer not to get one if it's going to have some funky and weird message on it. Made for a less desirable experience. Okay, Claire, before we move on, I need <laughs> yeah. to say, okay, so good fa for an affordable price. Great. Okay. Mm -hmm. Three-star review, Claire. <laughs> this was a three-star review because- Out of five. Out of Three out five, of five. Okay. On Google because of the, the fortune, fortune cookie. cookies were too negative. Be because whatever random fortune cookie this person got- <laughs> It does seem like he got it more than once, though. I it was a woman. Yeah. She. I. I. I only remember this from reading the review of being like. Mm, okay. <laughs> I had another fortune cookie experience actually on the same outing for Peking Duck. I went to Coming Soon, which is a wonderful little home goods and gift shop on the Lower East Side. They sell a nickel plated, so shiny silver fortune cookie that is giant that opens up on a hinge a like a box. box, and then inside was a little like cloth blank fortune that you could write on. And I had just given you concert tickets for your birthday, but I was like, this would be such a charming thing to write some in the fortune cookie voice, like, you know, adventure awaits 
at an at Olivia, Olivia Rod- Rodrigo concert. concert. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> because I think experiential gifts are tough that way where you're like, what am I actually giving you? And that's so cute to be like, a trip to Japan is in your future. God knows what, you know, whatever. But yeah. something so cute inside this fortune cookie thing, which also comes inside, they sell it in a shiny silver Chinese takeout box. That's darling. Isn't it so cute? It's 35 bucks, which feels like the perfect amount to spend too much on wrapping an experiential gift. Another company that does this is Chefany. They make these like jumbo mm. fortune cookies that are, I don't know, like like playground ball size, they yes. feel like. They're yes. like quite large. Yes. I got a little sticker shock looking at yes. them, I will say, but she sells them in sets that you would do for like, like a big event or yes. something if you were like inviting people yes. or like. You could imagine the world where people would do them to ask people to be their bridesmaids. And you could I don't imagine know. that world. It wouldn't be your world. It's not a world I live in or want to necessarily, yeah. but you could imagine a world. I I once made fortune cookies. You did? Yeah. What? We've never talked about this. No, I certainly would remember. In high school for Valentine's Day. Oh my God. I made fortune cookies for my friends. Wow. Um, and... It's not very hard and it was really fun. But wasn't the folding hard? No. So what you do is you make this like batter that's almost like pancake batter consistency and then you put it in the oven very briefly. It's like 90 seconds or two minutes in the oven and then you quickly take them out. It's a circle. Okay. And then you fold it and so it's like a semicircle. Okay. And then you hold it over the edge of like a glass or a mug and and you fold it. it. You Uh, pinch its little corners down. yeah, yeah. They looked great. That's they like cute. it was really remarkable. Maybe we'll make fortune cookies with Cam sometime. That would be cute. Yeah, that would be cute. I I like loved that. doing it, and he it's a very easy. Cookies. It's a very easy, very impressive little gift. That you know? is, that's very charming. Yeah, fortune cookies, having a moment <laughs> for us. You know, for us. Something I wanted to talk to you, please, about. I'm glad that you dug into it because I keep reading about it and I'm aware of it, but I'm like I haven't quite had it in me to get worked up about it and and learn about it. Internet search. Yeah. Internet search. Did, I'm curious how many people could have guessed that was what was coming after my preamble. <laughs> I was like, let's see. So this started because over the weekend, I was searching Substack for mm-hmm. suggestions for an upcoming trip. And I at first I was like, oh my God, pro tip, search your Substack. Yeah. This is a good like, source so for clever. things. Yeah. How useful. In yeah. the same way yeah. that I search Pinterest because right. I'm like, right, this is a yeah. like subset of the internet. It's not the entire internet. Also like the algorithm is less monetized. Like it's like it's it's not trying to force feed me paid ads the entire time I'm on the platform. Yeah. So that feels different. Then I was like, oh, shit, it's not just the newsletters I subscribe to that I want to see. It's other people like other Substack newsletters. So can you search all of Substack in that way? Yeah. Oh, that is a good pro tip. It is in the world that we live in. I just don't want to live in that world. Okay, but Substack has also changed. It used to be more like Tumblr and that you're like, oh, I have a sense of the type of community that's yeah. here on Substack. So I am getting curated results yeah. if I'm searching on here in a way that you're not necessarily getting yeah. from Google. Still true to an extent on Substack, except. And listen, when you search on Substack, you also pull up a lot of like random nonsense and a lot of people's like test posts and like what a, it's not like you're, it's not like it's the greatest user experience yeah. in the world. It just felt useful to me because regular search has become so bad. It's quite bad. And like how bad Google has gotten Mm -hmm. of it all is something that I certainly experience on a daily basis, but I just hadn't like come to grips with. It's media too. And I know that there's so many factors here, but it used to be that I would Google and then I would add 
Condé Nast Traveler or whatever, right? But all of these media titles are kind of meaningless now, too. Part so of the problem is the internet. Yes, Part of the problem is the yeah. entire internet, which, 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 yes, I will get to. Okay, so basically, there was an Atlantic article written by Charlie Warzel called The Tragedy of Google Search. Did um, you pay for the Atlantic? To, did, have, we, have we crossed this threshold? I saved it to pocket and read oh, it. Oh, good. Good work. That works with the Atlantic, <laughs> FYI. Great. Um, <laughs> Great. So first, to give credit, Google Search is arguably the most important innovation of the commercial internet, a modern marvel that has forever changed how billions of people access information. Its success, especially early on, felt like a small miracle. 1,000%. I rem- one of my crystal clearest memories of of my teen years is our librarian telling us about Google in really? high school. Yes. Do you do you remember no. where you were when you learned about Google? I can completely remember. No, I remember where I was when Princess Diana died, but not when I learned about Google. <laughs> I remember being in my high school library. I don't know what, I don't know if it was study hall. I don't know why, but I remember her explaining like there's this thing Google now. And, you know, obviously search engines existed before we used to yes. use Yahoo or Ask Jeeves or whatever. But she was like, this is really comprehensive. We'll pull up anything. And of course, we all immediately searched our names. She taught us about the quotes, you know, and I remember... Wow. I have a friend who had the same name as a pretty uh, successful dominatrix in the UK. Uh And so that was like the first (laughs) Google result that came up for her. It was such a just like memorable teen moment. Incredible. Incredible. Okay, to go further to Charlie's (laughs) piece. Unlike its streamlined, efficient former self, Google search is now bloated and overmonetized. It's harder now to find answers that feel authoritative or uncompromised. A search for healthy toddler snacks is overloaded with sponsored product placement prompts to engage with, quote, more questions. How do you fill a healthy toddler? Meat and Mm. seafood. Bring on the meat. And endless keyword engorged content. Using Google once felt like magic, and now it's more like rifling through junk mail, dodging scams and generic mailers. I wish you hadn't used the term engorged there. I yeah, done without that. I, that's a good that's a good editorial note. <laughs> and then he said, last fall, the former Googler and ex Yahoo CEO Marissa Mayer offered a charitable explanation as to why Google search feels worse, arguing that the search engine is merely reflection of the Internet as a whole, which has become more complex and laden with fraudsters and garbage. One hundred percent. It is the problem. I mean, you're right. It's like we used to have actual things to search for. Yeah. And now we don't have those things anymore. It's right. And it is mostly the internet's fault. You know, it's like paid, but the paid nature of search or or the paid products that have become so like entrenched in search, I think are huge drivers. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, obviously media is crumbling in large part because of the internet, but there's other factors at play too. This reminds me of that book that I waxed on for last, at some point last year called 10 Reasons to Delete Your Social Media Account by this guy, Jaron Lanyard, who is just has been around very close to the internet since the internet began. And his whole thing was that there was this very deliberate decision when the internet was being created to not put it in the hands of government. And instead it became this very sort of like libertarian approach that has led to what you're talking about. And that a lot of people, including him in retrospect, look back and think like, oh, some regulation might've actually been good because now it's broken. Right. Well, and I think the like, What this started to make me think about, which is something I truly have not thought about at all or have not considered 10 reasons to like break up with Google, like perhaps. (laughs) Well, Um, he's very much he includes Google in 10 reasons to delete your social media accounts. Yeah, because I forget exactly. He has an acronym, but he he includes Google and he's like he's he he doesn't think you should have a Google email address for this reason. He's like it's 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 all bad and shaping your world in a really bad way. And you having it is also contributing to this bad shaping of the world. Um, And 
so many ways. Obviously, I am very grateful for the way that Google knows me and Google knows what products I've clicked on before and Google knows Mm -hmm. not to serve me this and not to serve me that Mm -hmm. and what I will like. And that is like how we've gotten sucked into this trap. But I would be seeing very different content if I used a different search engine. And Thomas uses DuckDuckGo, which is, you know, the privacy search engine. And I think (laughs) he would be okay with me sharing that he uses the privacy search (laughs) engine. Watching him use it, there are just like certain things that are much more challenging and in ways that are like truly meaningless, like the dumbest shit in the world where I'm like, if he duck duck goes to see if a TV show is streaming, it is a much harder process to figure out the where of it than on Google where it just tells me it's it's like, like, here's where it is. Yeah, Yeah. here's where it is. And it's often wrong, I will say. It is often wrong. It is often wrong. The other two that I've been hearing about recently are something called Start Page, which mm-hmm. is, it is Google search, but it's Google search without the tracking pieces. Like without the cookies? It, it's it like ad blocked, basically. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't okay. know you. It's Google yeah. search. It doesn't know you. And then another called Perplexity, which Laura Riley talked about in the Why Is This Interesting newsletter. She said, I recently discovered the AI search engine Perplexity, and it's so much more helpful than Google, which is now all SEM. They have an app and it makes me feel that early internet information at your fingertips, digital benevolence I've been missing for a while. Hmm, That's a compelling sell. Right? I've only spent a little bit of time Mm -hmm. on it and I need to just like remind myself to go there, you know? But there is a certain, as you mentioned before, there's like a a reference you mentioned, Ask Jeeves quality, Mm -hmm. where there's a little bit of like the prompts are like more around asking questions than Mm. just like Googling like toddler shoes. It's like, what are the best toddler shoes for playing outdoors? Or like, right, okay. I don't know. Certainly you, you can search however the fuck you want to, but there's just like, and it's, it's kind free? of, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. And I think there is like a paid tier if you want X and Y, right. but yeah, yeah, it is free. No, I mean, I think we've talked a lot about how much shopping content there is now in media and so many shopping newsletters and, and every media property now has its shopping vertical. And I think it's in part because search is so awful. You need someone to do the work for Well, you. and because there's a revenue stream. Well, uh, yes, also affiliate <laughs> Those are the two things. is a big piece of it. But yeah. yeah, I do think people are just like, what do I buy? Like, how do yeah. I figure out what to buy? But this comes back to the the now classic joke in our friend group. Our friend was just Googled $400 dress. <laughs> <laughs> right. She was like, I don't, I don't know what I else to search yeah. for. Yeah. I don't know what else to search yeah. for. Yeah. Um, <sighs> that is a show. Oh, hi, this is Erin, and I just finished the most recent episode where you were talking about hand warmers, and I wanted to share a very cute story about my grandfather, Hans, who grew up in Germany in the 30s, and every morning on his way to school, his parents would give him two hot soft-boiled eggs to carry in his pockets, and they were his little hand warmers, and when he got to school, he would eat them, the eggs, for breakfast, so it was uh, a compostable zero waste uh, little hand warmer so maybe it's worth trying here in 2024 in Brooklyn this has been a production of Dear Media and we are so grateful to the talented team over there for helping us make this podcast happen especially our wonderful producer Olivia Mead you can follow us on Instagram at a thing or two HQ if you have ideas for the show or want to advertise email podcast at a thing or two HQ.com Find show notes and sign up for our newsletter at a thing or two hq.com. And if you love our show, you'll also want to join our Geneva. Lots of good chatter happening there.
note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.